Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. You know, in an essay that appeared in a collection of essays called God in the Dock, maybe you're familiar with it, but C.S. Lewis famously wrote this, that those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. It's hard to imagine a more fitting, prescient description of the world we live in. And I think this is one of the real benefits of a season like Lent. It can help us resist this pull to incessantly think about the sins of others and instead turn that focus inward. If you're new or visiting, just a brief note, you may have noticed that we do follow the liturgical or church calendar. So there are seasons throughout the year that we enter into as a congregation, and we do so really with the rest of the global church, where we focus maybe on specific events from the life of Christ, and, and that is accompanied by various practices. So you may see that our, our prayers and our scriptures focus on those themes, or the sermons and the songs that we sing focus on those themes, which was the case today as we, we sang Create in Me a Clean Heart. And, but, but this is why we, we organize the year in this way. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe, is so important to our understanding of who we are that we mark the passage of time in a different way. We, we adhere to a different calendar because we believe we are being shaped and we want to be shaped by a different story, a story that is different than the one in our dominant culture. In fact, if you've noticed this banner over to my left, you will see that over the course of the year, the color of that banner changes depending on the season we happen to be in. So right now it is purple for the first time since Advent because purple is also the color assigned to the Lenten season. But this is just a simple way. It is a visible reminder for us. Every time we gather in this room to worship, we are reminded, oh yes, we are a part of a bigger story, one that has Jesus at the center. So this is how we mark time and progress throughout the year. So today, as Austin mentioned a moment ago, is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. We are beginning, or we have began, that long journey with Jesus to his cross. A journey that we started a few days ago on Ash Wednesday, but Lent is a 40-day season that, that mirrors the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness, the story we just read from Matthew chapter 4. And for us, it is a time of preparation. It is a time where hopefully... Uh, it is helping us to situate our hearts and our minds in such a way that in several weeks we will be able to fully enter into the celebration of the resurrection. And as we figuratively journey with Jesus to his cross, we participate in a variety of practices toward that end. So in part, Lent is a process or a time of self-denial. This is why you might hear of people fasting certain things during the entire season. I just heard from Kara that she is fasting caffeine, and that is commendable. Um, <laughs> something that I 
am still too weak to do. But um, So you might hear of people fasting certain things for the entire season or routinely fasting meals throughout the season. Um, Lent is a season of self-denial, of limiting, of abstaining. It's also a season of prayer and confession. This is why we begin every service in Lent with that prayer for purity and, and why we incorporate various prayers of confession throughout the season. It's why we started with the psalm we started with today. We, during this season, we seek to come to terms with our own sinfulness. We want to look not at the sins of others, but we want to look our own sin in the face, not so that we become comfortable with it, but rather that we might become increasingly uncomfortable living out of alignment with the realities of God's kingdom. So confession must be a normal part of the Christian life for that reason. As Lewis said in that essay, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. We don't want that to be true of us. So with that being said, this first Sunday in Lent, we're actually returning to our series working through Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us during this process, so far the sermon has progressed from a careful description of the nature of God's kingdom, which we read in the Beatitudes several weeks ago. It then moved to a description of God's people as agents of influence in a world that experiences decay in various ways. So God's people, those gathered around Jesus, are to be salt and light. And in so doing, they are to preserve, enhance, shine forth in truth, beauty, and goodness. And as we live in this way, we then bring glory to the Father. We spent the first two weeks of this series exploring those ideas. Last week, then, our focus shifted to some of the direct social commands from Jesus, where we found this refrain that is going to be repeated again and again for the next couple of weeks, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, the law says, but I say to you. So Jesus quotes a command from the Old Testament law and then begins to expound upon it. Now, just a note, if if you weren't with us, but really as a reminder for all of us, when we find this refrain, this is not Jesus critiquing the law per se as though it were primitive or a misguided source of wisdom. Jesus shows us, reveals to us, even in this passage how he interacts with and relates to the Hebrew scriptures. He says explicitly, I am their fulfillment. It is all building to and pointing to me. And so I think this teaches us how we too relate to our scriptures. We see them as good and true. And as we enter the story, our scriptures tell We align our lives with Jesus because all of the scriptures are building to, pointing to, finding their fulfillment in him. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't continue in anger. Don't allow anger to 
dominate you. Resolve conflicts quickly. Seek reconciliation. These are actually acts of worship. Well, today we find another social command, this time one that addresses bringing human sexuality under alignment with God's kingdom reign. Because this is how Jesus continues in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, we find some pretty intense words from Jesus. We find this call from Jesus, a call to fidelity in marriage. Now, our culture is not altogether unlike that of the first century Roman world. If this sexual ethic had been adhered to in that world, it would have been a shock to the sexually licentious culture of that day. And I think the same might be true in many ways today. New Testament scholar Dale Bruner argues that while these two social commands that Jesus begins this section with, one concerning anger, what we looked at last week, and the one we consider today concerning sexuality, while they seem very different on the surface, there are actually a lot of similarities between the two. Like anger, last week, lust also seeks power over another person, but it does so through an opposite emotion. Whereas anger seeks power over another person by hatred, lust seeks power over another person by desire, which doesn't sound all that bad initially. Hatred sounds much worse, but both are at the core completely self-centered. There is no mutuality. Another human being is used to fulfill my desires. And Jesus says, for my people, it must not be so. Because humans are not pawns to use to get what we want. So we find these standards in the Mosaic Law that protected marriage for God's people. While temptation of unbridled sexual expression exists, God's people, if they are married, are to be faithful in that relationship. And so the law says, do not commit adultery. In the face of the reality that our sexual expression can go awry, the path forward for God's people is not to forego marriage or sexual expression altogether, but it is to be within the confines of that relationship. Marriage is good, and it can be a high calling for people. Now, I do want to emphasize that it is not the highest calling, and it is not the only calling for God's people. Not everybody 
will be married. In fact, singleness too is a high calling, and we need look no further than our Lord, who lived the fullest human life imaginable and did so as a single adult. But if and when one chooses to enter that relationship, it is a relationship that is to be protected. This is why we get the expansion of this later in the chapter. Verse 31, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So when entered, the marriage relationship is a relationship that is to be guarded. And when we think about these stipulations in the law, as I read them, they they are not intended to be overly restrictive laws that repress. Quite the contrary. Actually, these provided protection for individuals in that society who might be harmed through something like abandonment. This was a source of protection for those who were vulnerable. Do not step outside of this to find your sexual fulfillment. This harms another human being, and that matters. It is important. It destroys relational trust that exists in that relationship, and that matters. It's important. But Jesus, as we see in this chapter, as he did with anger last week, he takes it even further. Verse 28, but I say to you, so the law says do not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The problem is not that the eye sees or recognizes beauty as such. It is what the will does in the next moments. Does the eye continue to look or leer or stare with lustful intent? Sexual desire or drive is not the enemy. It is a good gift of God enjoyed in the context of marriage, but using another human being who is created in the image of God as a means to satisfy my desire is dehumanizing. If you look with intent to possess, Jesus says, adultery has already been committed in the heart. Another difficult saying of Jesus one that I think we must be willing to take seriously as his people. In an overly sexualized culture, especially with the proliferation of and easy access to something like pornography, I think this instruction becomes even more important for us to sit with, to take seriously. We refuse, as those gathered around Jesus, we refuse to look with lustful intent. Sexual desire is normal. But at times, like all good things, it can be misdirected. And when it is misdirected in lustful ways, it is dehumanizing and destructive and 
ultimately can lead to outright infidelity. Misdirected desire, like misdirected anger that we considered last week, can be a normal temptation we experience, but do we allow it to persist? And this is where Jesus offers us a way out. He doesn't just say, avoid this type of behavior, but again, as ethicist Glenn Stassen argues, one of the the patterns that we see taking place in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus identifies this harmful behavior, but then offers his people a path out of that dangerous and destructive cycle. Jesus says there is a way out. There's a way out of these patterns that are dehumanizing, sinful, these destructive behaviors that will not only harm our souls, but will negatively impact how we relate to other human beings. And here it is, the path out. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If your eye or your hand causes you to sin, tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. This is one of those texts where even some of the more strict biblical literalists would eagerly opt for a metaphorical interpretation. (laughs) But the point Jesus seems to be driving home cannot be missed. Is he saying that we actually need to mutilate our bodies? I I don't think so. But he does seem to suggest that what is needed is decisive, maybe even extravagant, immediate action. Why? Because this is really important. What seems to be a need that I must satisfy, regardless of the context, or what seems to be a need that I am entitled to satisfy, regardless of the context, could actually be destructive. So dramatic action is needed. This is a means of protection against insidious habits that, if left unattended to, will lead to devastating realities. So this may seem extreme, it may seem puritanical, unless we realize that the health of our souls and how we relate to other human beings is on the line. And then it obviously becomes really important. Has anybody ever done a polar plunge of some sort? I know this seems like an odd segue, but stick with me. Anybody? It's, uh, you know, you, you submerge your body into an icy body of, it doesn't even have to be a natural body of water, it could be a giant tub filled with ice. As I understand it, this practice has been trending on the TikTok, right? So if you're, the t- which I guess is a giveaway that I don't participate in the TikTok. But it supposedly has a variety of physical and mental benefits. I don't know the science behind it, but in my experience, they are incredible. I participated in the old polar plunge several times in different rivers in Alaska during the springtime, just after the ice broke. 
it was cold. And it was awful, but it was also quite invigorating. And in my experience, the key to the polar plunge is decisive entry into the water. Submerge your entire body in an instant. I know some people prefer to enter icy water sort of following the direction of Bill Murray from the film What About Bob with baby steps, right? I think that's a mistake. You submerge your body in an instant. There are folks who go into an icy pool via the stairs, step in on that first step, allow the water to come up to your ankle, wait for about 10 minutes so your body acclimates to that cold temperature, take another's. And entering the pool takes an hour or two. Again, I think that's a mistake. It is immediate immersion in the pool. And I know this is an inadequate analogy like most of mine are, but Jesus seems to say when it comes to sin, that approach is not going to work. The source of the struggle needs to be eliminated, needs to be cut out. And it's not just adultery, it is an issue in the human heart. And that heart rot, Jesus says, can be present even if an overt act of physical infidelity is avoided. This is important, though. In fact, in Ephesians 5, Paul suggests that the stakes are so high with this that there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality among the body of Christ. And I know that this flies in the face of a culture of unbridled license, but again, the entire sermon from beginning to end is setting forth a countercultural kingdom we are a part of. And so it makes sense that this would grate against everything we know from the world we live in. It seems that the temptation toward sexual sin is always going to be a possibility, but Jesus says there is a path out. There's a path out. You don't have to remain stuck in that destructive cycle. And the path out is to relentlessly eliminate the things that promote sinful actions, attitudes, or thoughts in my life. And it can be any number of things. The, the list is probably endless. The list of things that it could be is probably as varied as we are unique in this room. But to relentlessly eliminate the things that promote sin in my life. Maybe it's a place or a friend group or an app on your phone or other media like literature or film, and the list goes on and on. I'm, I'm not trying to identify what it is for you. I'm just trying to encourage you to have a time of introspection and consider what are the things that promote sin that I allow to remain in my life. And this is where I want to take it back and, and tie it back to what we started our time with regarding some of the common Lenten practices like fasting, and confession, fasting. Of course, biblical fasting is not abstaining from sin. Abstaining from sin is a part of the sanctification process. Fasting, on the other hand, is abstaining from good things for a season for spiritual purposes. But perhaps one of the side benefits of a practice like fasting is that it normalizes self-denial for us. 
Oh, I don't have to immediately satisfy this craving that I'm experiencing. I can exercise some self-control in this. I, I think fasting can be a very helpful practice for us for that reason. The benefit of confession, I think, is similar. The more we confess sin, the more comfortable we become addressing it directly. And the more uncomfortable we become living out of alignment with the values of God's kingdom. It becomes normal to repent and turn from sin rather than continuing to conceal it or sweep it under the rug. So fasting and confession, I think these Lenten practices can be really helpful in regard to a conversation like the one we've encountered in Matthew chapter 5. So as we begin to, to bring this to a conclusion, I think one of the things that we find in, in Christ's instruction on this is that lust is not a neutral or a victimless sin just because it often goes unnoticed or undetected. Since it can take place entirely in the mind, it can be easy for us to excuse it or convince ourselves that it's not that big of a deal or that it isn't that destructive, but Jesus seems to suggest that couldn't be further from the truth. It not only destroys us, but it also destroys how we see and relate to other humans. So as participants of God's reign, which we're exploring in the Sermon on the Mount, we refuse to objectify others. We refuse to look at other human beings created in God's image as pawns to satisfy our desires. When we allow sin to, to occupy our thoughts, when we give it space in our lives and our minds, it eventually comes out in destructive ways. I think in this regard, there is no victimless sin. It impacts us. It impacts how we relate to others. And so this is what, what I want to encourage. If you have found yourself in a cycle of lust and, and you see that it is destroying you inside, or maybe it's destroying your relationships, or if you found yourself looking to satisfy sexual desire in a way that is unfaithful to your spouse if you're married, or, or maybe it has already gotten to that point, I think Jesus beckons us back to himself, beckons us to redirect our compass, to redirect our lives away from sin and to him. And I believe there is grace and mercy for you today in Jesus. And I believe the power of the Holy Spirit can bring deliverance and restoration to you personally and to your relationship. But as Jesus says, it is also going to take decisive action on your part. You're going to have to be willing to do some surgery, as it were. Maybe a relationship needs to go. Maybe media consumption needs to be completely overhauled. Whatever it is that is enabling compromise, I think Jesus beckons us to be willing to cut it out. Cut it out, 
redirect our gaze at Jesus, turn from our sin. And I think in line with our Lenten practices of confession, practices that certainly aren't limited to the Lenten season, but they are on our minds in a unique way during this season, I would also encourage you to confess your sins to one another. In our new membership meeting, we, we had one just a couple of weeks ago. One of the things we talk about in each one of those meetings is that we want to be a community of faith where confession of sin is normalized. It's what we do, not in the sense of resignation, well, we've done it again, but I, I believe it is a powerful practice that helps deliver us from the grip of sin because oftentimes sin thrives in secrecy. And exposing it, confessing it, repenting of our sin and moving with God's grace in, and mercy into newness of life has the ability to break its hold in us. So I would encourage you in this regard. For a moment of introspection, what in my life is allowing habits of sin to persist? And am I willing to cut it out? So I confess my sin, confess my sin to my brothers and sisters, move forward, in God's grace and mercy, redirect my gaze at Jesus Christ moving away from my sin. And ultimately, there's mercy and grace. We are invited to the table of our Lord who has provided not only a path out of our sin but a path into newness of life. So we gather today to celebrate around the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who makes new life possible. Would you stand as we prepare to receive the grace and mercy of Jesus in this moment? We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. You'll come forward. Um, when you get to the front, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. As you confess your sin, I encourage you to receive Receive with open hands the grace and mercy of our God. By way of invitation, I'll say a prayer. Also, I wanted to mention, um, there will be people available for prayer. Um, if you have a need in your life that you would like somebody to agree in prayer for that need, we invite you into that. There will be somebody here at the front in front of these candles and somebody back in front of the quiet room. Um, so I encourage you, if you have a need, uh, Somebody will be available to pray with you. By way of invitation to the table of our Lord, let's pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you join us to celebrate around the table of our Lord?